surrogate measures that are able to predict not so much the individual variation in aging, but the effects of interventions on the individual variation in aging. The big interest is in developing interventions that are able to increase or to boost the health of humans throughout the lifespan. Hey there, I'm Luca Fusarbassini, I'm a PhD student in computational biology at EPFL in Switzerland, and you're listening to a biotech futurist. The biotech futurist aims to foster deep understanding and discussion about exciting hot topics in biotech. But I want to say from the beginning that it is by no means rigorous in teaching the subject. And for the sake of outreach, sometimes we need generalizations that, of course, simplify the reality of the science behind what we're discussing. But I can say that my guests and I do our best to be clear and to go in depth. You can imagine to be out with me and my expert guest for a friendly conversation to get a general understanding and more curiosity, having fun as much as I've had recording this podcast. This podcast has no sponsors and any reference is not meant to support any commercial activity. This podcast is a solo effort, so if you wish to support me, I'd be grateful if you followed the Biotech Futurist on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Instagram or your top podcasting platform and share it with your friends. With that said, I am excited to move on to today's conversation at the Biotech Futurist. Welcome back to the Biotech Futurist. Today, I'm delighted to virtually meet Professor Alessandro Cellerino and discuss with him omics-based age and lifespan prediction, with the ultimate goal of delaying aging and several age-related diseases. Professor Alessandro Cellerino is a world leader in aging and longevity research. He is an associate professor and research group leader at the Scuola Normale Superiore in Pisa and the Leibniz Institute on Aging. He is also a great science communicator. Prof, may you summarize for us your passions, achievements, and some tales about you as a scientist? Okay, so uh, professionally speaking, uh, my uh, my research question is to understand why, let's say, a mouse lives three years and we live over ninety. Or to put it in a more general context, what are the mechanisms that regulate uh, lifespan and aging? And I like to do that in, in evolutionary context, so uh, comparing species that have different lifespans. And this is this also comes a lot from what is my my personal pa- personal passions. I've been breeding fish for many many years. I'm very interested in animals. So in a way, this is a bit putting together my my hobby and my my personal uh, scientific interests. Wonderful. So what led you to become a scientist and uh, tell us something about your career so far? Oh, this is a good question. (laughs) So uh, I think first of all, one has to, I mean, there are different types of scientists. People become scientists for different reasons. Uh, My take on this is that it makes sense to be a scientist or what what motivates for sure me to be a scientist and I think many colleagues 
that there are questions you really want to know the answer. I mean, at the end of the day, you remain for your whole life like a child that wants to open up the clock to see how it, it works. Um, and so I have a very much curiosity-driven view of science. And then from that point of view, I've always liked to know why things happen. And I always liked animals as far as I can, as, as far as I can remember. So it was, I mean, I always wanted to be a zoologist or something in that direction. Now, the way it came to my personal career, there have been a couple of steering points. I mean, the first one was to become student of Scuola Normale, as you also are, uh, which of course gives a very strong um, computational slash quantitative feedback to, to your studies. The problem is that when I studied, uh, it wasn't very, very fashionable to be a computational biologist because simply there weren't enough data around to, to tackle with. Um, so I was interested in neuroscience and I'm, I'm still interested in neuroscience and particularly on brain wiring. I mean, what are the, the molecular mechanisms that regulate the way uh, neurons connect one to another? And then relatively later in my career, let's say around 2000, I started to be interested in aging and, and particularly in, in using the killifish as an animal model for aging. And then the other turning point has been about 15 years ago or so, the moment when these uh, next generation sequencing technologies came to the market that completely revolutionized the way uh, we think about science. I mean, probably for many young students, this is hard to perceive because they didn't know the word before. But this has been really a, a revolution like the Industrial Revolution. And, and, and that also made the quantitative aspect much more important and much more attractive to, to a broad audience. And, and this is how I basically try to combine these, these two aspects. So on the other, on one hand, the biology of aging that is based on comparative analysis and, and experimental studies, because I was and I still am an experimental scientist, but on the other hand, the interest for data analysis in the context of um, NGS data, so gene expression data. Yeah, that's insightful, thank you. So you mentioned killifish. I wonder if you could explain to us uh, why killifish, what are the advantages of this model organism and the story behind it and how you started working on it? So killifish, it's... it's um, a large group of animals, also a little bit ill-defined, let's put it this way. Um, but if we focus on, on the annual killifish that are those that we study, they are fish that live in the least place on Earth where you would expect to find fish. That are the seasonal ponds that are created in, in, in the tropical part of the world due to the monsoon season. So you have these habitats that only exist during the rain season. And when water dries up, all 
adult fish died and they can survive because they produce uh, eggs that enter into a diapause. So the eggs develop up to a certain stage and more or less, you know, in mid-development, these embryos completely freeze and remain there for months or even years, waiting for the next rain season to come. So these animals have the same biology of the annual plants we are very used to. You know, these plants that remain as a seed in the soil and only appear in certain periods of the year. But the, the interest for me was that the, the natural lifespan of these animals is very limited because it, it cannot be longer than the duration of the pools. And depending where you look for those animals, these pools are really short-lived. But when I thought to use those fish as animal models, what I've looked for out of the many species was the one that comes from the most arid habitat and so the shortest lived one. Because others tried in the 70s and 80s to, to study annual killifish as model for aging. But this was a little bit premature on one hand and on the other hand, uh, this wasn't the shortest lived species. So there, there wasn't such a big advantage at that time. Um, but the species I concentrated on, they really live only six to seven months in captivity. Now, what is the big advantage? Is that if you want to study the effect of a given intervention, a drug, uh, a gene mutation on aging, you can do this in a fraction of the time that would be needed to do the same experiment in the mouse. So working with these animals reduces a lot the cost of studying the biological mechanisms of aging that otherwise is really prohibitive. I mean, there aren't many laboratories around the world that can afford to have aging mouse colonies and to, you know, for example, give a compound for years uh, before they can have a readout on, on the effects of this compound. So that was the idea at the start, and we are, this was around early year 2000. And at that time, I mean, we really had to demonstrate that these animals were short-lived because they were aging and not because we were not able to keep them properly. But what was really the the changing game was, as I said, the advent of next generation sequencing. Because this allowed us to sequence the genome of this fish and to be able to do a lot of transcriptomic studies and more recently proteomic studies. At the same time, other groups set up methods for doing gene manipulation, gene overexpression, gene loss of function, so basically, I mean, at the moment, I can estimate there are more than 100 people around the world working with this species of killifish. And it's, I mean, I have to say, it's really amazing that within 15 years, these animals went from 
the status of zoological curiosity, the shortest lived vertebrate, to a real model organism where you can study the molecular mechanisms of aging. Yeah, that's outstanding indeed. Thank you for explaining. So I guess your group and your collaborators also have some important contributions about what you were just saying. So uh, connecting uh, RNA-seq readouts, so measuring uh, the expression level of some genes in uh, specific cell types in this short-lived killifish to explain uh, its uh, relatively variable mortality um, and uh, uh, indeed uh, our omics modalities to connect to their lifespan. So is lifespan something that at least to some extent is encoded in the transcriptome or other omics modalities? And thinking broadly, are there any examples out there of how the environment and environmental challenges resulting in a change in lifespan or you know, aging is mirrored into the transcriptome resulting in clear age-related phenotypes? This is a complex question, but it's really at the heart of aging biology. So the question is, to what extent our life trajectory is determined by our genes, or in any case, it's determined by conditions that were set much earlier than the time point when aging really sets on. So, to look at some data in humans, if you look at the overall uh, heritability of lifespan, this is pretty low. It's around 17%. Uh, and this was studied recently looking at the extremely extensive pedigree of people in the United States. So just, you know, looking at, at uh, birth certificates and death certificates in automated fashion over many, many million of people. Uh, however, humans are a complicated model to answer this question because we all eat different things. We all live in different environments. So the environmental aspect, there is much more variability. On the other hand, when you have an animal model, these animals, they so in our case, these fish, they all live in the same water, they all eat the same food, they are all exposed to the exact same type of pathogens. So we are in a condition where we can reduce dramatically the effects of environmental variables on the aging phenotype. And then you are left with two components. One is the genetic component, and the other one is a stochastic component. So it is not due to genetic variability, but to the fact that individuals take different trajectories and then they continue on different trajectories, even if these trajectories are not necessarily heritable. So the experiment that we did that is, in principle, a very simple experiment from the conceptual point of view, was to take fish at young age, have tiny biopsies from these animals, and then let them leave. And so we could correlate gene expression at young age 
with the actual time of death for each individual fish. So the question was, are the animals that live the shortest and those that live the longest, were those animals already different at young age? And the surprising answer was yes, <laughs> they are. I mean, there is a signature in the transcriptome that is correlated with the time point of death much later in the ontogeny of those animals. And, and one of the molecular pathways that we could correlate with individual lifespan was basically the entire machinery that is responsible for the biosynthesis of the respiratory chain complexes in the mitochondria. So just to recapitulate some basic knowledge, much of the genes that code for mitochondrial proteins are actually in the nuclear genome, including all the genes coding for the protein synthesis machinery. So all the ribosomal subunit, all the proteins that are necessary for the processing of the RNA, and then for the folding and assembly of the complexes, and many of the subunits of the complexes themselves. So what we found is that the expression of these genes uh, was correlated with individual lifespan. But when we, in an independent experiment, compared the sequence of those genes, so not the expression level, but the sequence of those genes in shorter and longer lived species of killifish, so we were asking a different question is, to what extent the evolution of lifespan at the species level is related to the evolution of those genes, we found the signature of positive selection on the same genes or on the same gene categories, notably the subunit of the mitochondrial ribosome, for example, whose expression was correlated with lifespan in the killifish. So we found converging evidence from comparing different individuals of the same species at the expression level and comparing different species at the sequence level on the role of this process that is called mitonuclear balance, so the coordination of the nuclear and mitochondrial gene expression processes in the regulation of lifespan. Yeah, that was an exciting discovery. Uh, thank you for explaining. So I think that directly leads us to the main topic of today's episode, that is the prediction of uh, lifespan, that is the age of death of a given animal. And uh, on the other hand, uh, the different but relatively close prediction of a current, uh, let's say, biological age of an organism, which we'll define in a second. So, um, yeah, today's episode will be mostly about epigenetic clocks. 
I'd be happy if you could start by giving us some definitions, uh, including what is epigenetics in simple terms, and specifically DNA methylation, which is commonly used for epigenetic clocks, as well as what is a molecular biomarker of aging, uh, and so what is an epigenetic clock. Okay, so I would start the other way around. I would start by defining what is a biomarker of aging, and then we will see why epigenetic clocks are at the moment particularly attractive as biomarker of aging. So the, the need for biomarkers of aging comes from the fact that for very obvious reasons, the, the experiment that I've described in fish cannot be done in humans or in principle, it could be done in humans, but it would mean taking blood samples from people who are now in their 20s or their 30s, and then wait until the actual death. So, um, so there is a very big interest in translational aging research in finding, finding some surrogate measures that are able to predict not so much the individual variation in aging, but the effects of interventions on the individual variation in aging. The big interest is in developing interventions that are able to increase or to boost the health of humans throughout the lifespan. So ideally, we would like to have a biomarker, some measure, possibly molecular, but not necessarily, that can be assessed before a given intervention and after a given intervention, in order to select interventions that have a prospect to improve more than the lifespan, the, let's call it, disease-free span of people, so to improve the health in old age. In searching for such biomarkers, scientists have realized that DNA methylation is a particularly promising di dimension where to look for such biomarkers. So DNA methylation is simply the process by which certain cytosines, uh, so certain, no, certain positions in the genome get a covalent modification. So a methyl group is added. So we can, in general terms, think about epigenetics like the genome is the text of a book and the epigenetics are the notes that we write on the text of this book. So we are not changing the content of the book, but we highlight some particular parts of the book and we can maybe delete some part of the book as non-interesting. Now, for technical reason, it is 
possible to measure these modifications at the single nucleotide levels using microarrays. And epigenetics has been studied very extensively, especially in the context of cancer. Uh, because it was thought that epigenetic may explain what mutations cannot explain. And now at some point, and this is a very specific point in time, is 2013, a, a very creative scientist, whose name is Steve Orbat, he downloaded all the data that were present on databases where the methylation profiles of a series of human organs, which in some cases were simply the controls for cancer studies, had methylation, methylation levels reported. Based on this data, he constructed a model a relatively simple machine learning. Maybe we will look at this more in detail later. So he constructed a model that was able, by looking at only around 350 positions in the genome, and remember the genome is 3.6, roughly 3.6 trillion bases, uh, looking only at this around 350 position, regardless of the organs, it was able to predict the age of that specific sample with a mean error rate that was in the order of plus minus five years or even less. So this was at that time a really amazing uh, discovery, especially for the fact that this, what he called epigenetic clock, was able to predict the age of many different organs with the same model, which was totally unexpected. <laughs> it was, you know, it was not surprising that if you only study blood cells, you can maybe predict age, or if you can only study skin. But what was really surprising was this multi-tissue stability of the model. So the capability of this model to predict age of many different tissues. And this is what was really the big bang for the studies on epigenetic clock. I mean, from there on, the same type of model was applied to a host of many different data sets. And especially pathological data set to demonstrate that people suffering from some specific diseases, this can be Down syndrome or neurodegenerative diseases. Now, in those cases, if you look at the predicted age, the predicted age is bigger than their actual age. So, 
this phenomenon was named epigenetic age acceleration. If we want to make an example is, you no, know, we are very used to guess people age from their faces, from their appearance. Um, and we normally say that, you know, there are people who look younger than their age or look older than their age. And now this epigenetic clock, in a way, was giving an objective measure of this kind. So he was telling this specific individual from the epigenetic point of view looks older than he or she actually is. And there have been many, many different studies of this kind relating uh, the epigenetic acceleration with certainly specific diseases, more generally on risk factors like smoking. And so this led to the concept that this epigenetic clock could really be a measure of what we may call biological age. So the question is that people who have all the same age also have different life expectancies at the individual level. And, and the idea behind the hope be, behind this, the development of epigenetic clocks or molecular clocks in general, is that we can have a, a measure of how really the biological age of these people differ. Now, of course, it's difficult to, to put this measurement in the context of mortality for humans. There are some cohorts where really mortality has been tracked for 10 years or, or longer. But it's always measurements that are done in people who are already old. So in order to develop epigenetic clocks that are more broadly applicable, then the very same approach was used not to predict age, but to predict risk factors for diseases. Um, but I have to say that I mean, the final validation of these models, so the demonstration that they really uh, can make prediction on the lifespan or, or, or the health span prospects of individuals is still in the making. I mean, there are, there are also contrasting reports and obviously this type of studies in humans are very difficult to be done. This is something that everybody can understand. On the other hand, the problem of these epigenetic clocks is that by the way they are designed, it is not straightforward to apply them to animal models where you can do the type of measurements I just described before. Because the, those very specific regions of the genomes that are used for making the prediction may not be conserved. And indeed, I mean, when an epigenetic clock was derived for the mouse, 
it was using mostly um, different positions in the genome than the human one. So the, the, this, these are these are let's say the two open problems of this. Let's call them molecular clock in general. Even if now, I mean, the most used is certainly the, the epigenetic one. But also, why there is great interest in developing such type of biomarkers, and and there are you know really uh, startups or or quite grown startups, I would say. That, that make their uh, one of their focuses on the development, on the refinement of of better uh, epigenetic clocks. Wonderful, yeah. All of this is pretty striking, and I remember going home and googling for quite a long time in the night uh, this Horvath's clock after you mentioned it to me for the first time. So to, to sum up in very simple terms, as Prof said, Basically, um, in our DNA, there are some modifications, as he called, nodes on the page around the main text. And these modifications can be somehow measured and associated with uh, the age of a person. So, under some variety of machine learning frameworks, then uh, this association can be used indeed to predict from these modifications on the DNA the age of a given person. So, basically, the training process uh, that most clocks employ is to use this pairing of age of a given person and their epigenetic or molecular data in general. But there's a fundamental difference here that Prof mentioned to me a couple of times, that is that these clocks are trained uh, indeed to predict uh, the chronological age of a person. So how can we then shift to biological age? I mean, chronological age prediction is something that we wanna minimize there about, and to do this, uh, um, we, we look at populational average, right? So at some point, we want to have a measure of biological age that can really point to the people who deviate uh, looking younger or looking older than their same chronological age people. So how, how can one really distinguish be between a model's error in predicting uh, the lifespan or, I mean, the physiological, biological age of a person and at the other side of the equation, uh, really predicting the true age of that person based on its biology and not on its chronological age what's the difference here yes i mean this is this is a very good question because if you look at it from a machine learning point of view the best clock is a clock that predicts the correct age of a person no matter what so if the only information that you use for training the, the machine learning algorithm is age, actually a good algorithm is an algorithm that predicts age correctly for people who are healthy and for people who are sick and for people who will become sick. Because this is the only information that the algorithm has. And indeed, one point of discussion because when you apply those algorithms to individual people, there is a deviation from the chronological age, to what extent this deviation is carrying information, and to what extent this deviation is simply an error of the algorithm that is not perfect. 
So it's a random error. So in humans, this is complicated in the sense that, I mean, in principle, the ideal setting is the one I just described. So you take sample from people when they are young and you know the exact day of death of these people and you try to predict this with a machine learning algorithm. For obvious reason, this is not possible in humans. So, what you can do in humans is what I just described, is try to train your algorithm not on age, but on risk factors, or try to incorporate as much as you can longitudinal studies in humans. In animal models, you can directly address the problem. So you can take samples when the animals are young, wait for all the cohort to die, and then train your machine learning algorithm on the molecular data that you collected when the animals were young. And in that case, you would be able to directly relate uh, your prediction with lifespan. Now, the problem is you need to have a predictor that works both on an animal model and in humans. And as I said, epigenetics is not the best choice from, from that point of view, because epigenetic modification may happen in non-conserved parts of the genome, and it can be very difficult or even, even impossible to identify what is the correct position in another species. From that point of view, studying the transcriptome is uh, much easier because we know that many human genes have a corresponding ortholog in the model organisms, for sure in the vertebrate model organisms. So if we train a predictor not on the methylation level, but on the gene expression levels, then there are much broad, it is much easier to transfer these from one species to another one. However, there haven't been many predictors trained on the transcriptome so far. So we have developed one in the killifish and we have exactly shown that this predictor can be transferred to humans. If you develop a predictor in a species, then you want to show that it can predict the same variable in another species. So if you train a predictor on lifespan in the killifish or in the mouse, but you do not have data in humans where you can link gene expression to lifespan, you cannot show that this is really transferable. So what we did, we trained a predictor to predict age in killifish, this predictor only uses, yeah, around 300 genes, so more or less the same number of genes that were in the epigenetic clock. And then we used only those genes in humans to train again the predictor on human data. And we found that 
this was able also to predict the age of human samples much like much in the same way than the epigenetic clock does this means it is multi-tissue doesn't matter which tissue you are looking at it will give you a prediction so and this is this is the first step towards developing biomarkers that can be used in an animal model where you can do interventions also on lifespan but then they give you information of what the effects of the same intervention may be in humans that's wonderful so to sum up prof was just describing how building an epigenetic clock that can work in multiple species can really do the most uh, for a um, long-term clinical application. What I mean here is that if we have a clock that really can predict the same thing in our case, the age or the lifespan in an animal model by using the same type of data, the same exact genes as in this case in killifish and in humans, and it is reliable in both of them, then we can treat let's say the killifish with uh, some intervention such as some small molecule that can potentially alter lifespan and that read out if I mean if this molecule really helps the killifish live longer or live better then maybe it makes sense that it will also help humans of course it's not so straightforward but in, in the sense it's a good step to really have a good model organism that uh, can make the most of uh, what we can measure and what we can do as an intervention. So I think, uh, Prof, you already mentioned several foundational concepts in this field and I'd be happy to delve deeper into some of them. Maybe we could start by describing uh, in uh, simplified terms but still in quite detail uh, some models, frameworks uh, that are behind uh, these uh, architectures, uh, these machine learning architectures that enable um, the development of molecular clocks. And maybe we could also describe briefly the advantages and limitations of uh, each of them. I think a good uh, uh, term to introduce first would be that of a penalty function and then uh, how the lasso, reach and elastic nets deal with this uh, problem of uh, predicting uh, lifespan or biological age uh, from molecular data and what are the advantages and limitations of each of them and what your lab has been doing in this realm to make things even better and to enable what you've just described for us. Okay, so uh, the, the, the very big problem of uh, applying machine learning to molecular data, omics, what we call omics data, is that typically the number of variables is order of magnitude larger than the number of actual observations. And this very easily leads to a problem that is called overfitting. What, what, what is an overfitting? Overfitting means that if you just have one population and you want to create, let's talk about age for, for simplicity because we have been talking about age all the time. So you have a certain population and you train a model to predict the age of this specific population, those specific individuals. If you have many variables at hand, you can predict probably very, very precisely the age of each and every individual in the data set. However, if you, if you now want to use this model, you know, this is a prediction, so to say, because 
the algorithm is trained having as information the age of these individuals. So it creates a model by adjusting parameters on the variables, but having accessible the age of the individuals. So the, the variables that one wants to predict. So this is not a real prediction. This is a fitting. It's fitting the variables to the known age of these individuals. And we'll probably be able to predict with very big precision the age of the individuals. However, if you now take other individuals, then the algorithm will perform very poorly because it is fixated on the example that was used for training. And this is a, a little bit the problem in machine learning. So to create models that are that can be generalized uh, outside of the data set that was used for training. So how can we avoid the problem of overfitting the data? We can avoid this by trying to use not all the variables that are available, but only a part of them, possibly a tiny part of them. Now, let's talk about train and test set, okay? So you reduce the performance of your prediction on, on the set that you use for training because what you really want is to be able to make a real prediction on a test set where the information on the age of the individual is not accessible to the algorithm. And this is done exactly, uh, as you said, by introducing a penalty function. So very generally, you are penalizing the model for each variable that it uses. So you are forcing the model to select some variables out of the many that are, that are available. How is this done? You name the specific approach that is called lasso. In lasso, the penalty function is simply the sum of the absolute value of the coefficients. So one thing that I forgot to say and that is very important, this model is a simple linear model. So you have many variables. Each of these variables has a coefficient and the prediction is simply given by the sum of each variable multiplied by its own coefficient. So, reducing the number of variables that are used for the prediction means driving many of these coefficients to zero. If the coefficient is zero, that variable is not used for the prediction. And the way this is achieved is by using as penalty function the sum of the absolute values of the coefficients. A different, slightly different model is the ridge regression that you named. In this case, the penalty function is not the absolute value of the coefficient, but is the squared coefficient. 
The difference is that if the coefficient is smaller than one, the square of the coefficient is much smaller than the absolute value. So the first approach is much more penalizing than the, than the second one. And in the second case, in, in the ridge regression, the coefficient tend to be very small, but they are not driven to zero. And then the elastic net, it's simply a combination of both. Now, in real-world applications, the elastic net is the algorithm that was used to develop the epigenetic clock and is broadly, broadly used to develop this type of molecular clocks. For its simplicity and, and also for the fact that by selecting specific features, specific variable, is also interpretable in the sense that it is at least known which variables are used for the prediction, which is not the okay. case. And that's a lot. Which is a lot, because it is often not the case for other machine learning approaches. So, I mean, in, in real-world applications, this elastic net uh, regression really demonstrated its value. However, it, inherently, it has a limitation, and the limitation is that it is a linear method. So, it will necessarily be unable to model non-linear processes, and in fact, in some cases, to improve the performance, some non-linear transformation were imposed to either the input or the output of, of the epigenetic clock. For example, in the original clock, the time point between 0 and 20 years of age are modeled differently than the time point from 20 years of age onwards. So from 20 years of age onwards, it's really linear, but from 0 to 20, there is a logarithmic transformation involved. Also, it has been described that this linear model tend to make mistakes, like underestimating the age of the older people in the dataset, uh, which could have different interpretation. It could be because those people who have bad health died before, so you are selecting for good agers, people of lower biological age, but it can also be that simply the aging is not a linear process and therefore there is limitation when you want to model it with a linear model. Yeah, that's interesting. So maybe um, I can ask now a very quick curiosity-driven question before jumping to our two final main topics. This curiosity-driven question is about applications of these methods with molecular clocks to immortal species such as hydras and planarias and to very long-lived vertebrates. I mean, what does or what would the clock say to you? So, I mean, the point is uh, I don't even know whether uh, <laughs> hydras and planarias have DNA methylation. I know that C. elegans doesn't have DNA methylation. That's um, but I know that the epigenetic clock was applied to what is proposed as a non-aging model, the naked mole rat. And 
it still ticks. I mean, it ticks slower than in a mouse, but it still ticks. But there the question is whether the naked mole rat is really non-aging, as it has been proposed by some. Um, the problem of this clock, as I said, especially outside of mammals, is that if you want to study the clock, I mean, it's not so easy to compare the clock in two species. Because you can do this only if you have stretches of DNAs that are the same in the two species that are used by the clock. So for that reason, it's not so easy. But what it was shown is that for the naked mole rat, is, the clock is still ticking, even if it was described as a species that has negligible senescence. But, but I mean, the point is also that, you know, the question is to what extent it's a chronological clock and to what extent the clock really measures the biological age. So I guess there are lots of hot topics in this field now and one of them is, for instance, uh, the applications of these uh, clocks at single cell level as technologies are making it possible now and yeah, are cells really aging together or at different rates or can we say something about rejuvenation looking at the single cell level? Moreover, we have uh, um, works uh, predicting specific age-related diseases, likelihood in specific organs instead of uh, multi-tissue generally applicable clocks as the one that Professor Cellerino just described about uh, the Harvard and his group work. So more in general, uh, can we build similar tools based on machine learning models, anomics data to assess the risk of cancers, dementias and other diseases and possibly stratify the population for efficient screening? Again, um, using these models uh, to understand something about aging would be really interesting. What is the underlying biology? Why can we really use this kind of omics data, or molecular data to predict age? There must be something happening in ourselves that can uh, indeed uh, somehow signal our age uh, so we can detect it. So w what's the biology behind it? Can we intervene on this biology to make our lifespan or our health span better? Okay, so uh, I can go first to, to this question, because that's, that's a really important one. I mean, to what extent the genes that are identified by the clock are also causative of aging? Do, do they bring some information? Are they special in any way? So, as I said, the, the Horvath clock, it's about 350 positions in the genome, but let's call them genes for simplicity. It's 350 genes, 350 variables. Now, I can take my data set and remove these 350 and train the clock again. And the clock will be almost as good as the previous one. Then I can remove these variables a second time and train the clock again. And the clock will be only slightly, slightly worse than the previous one. Yeah, so this means that, you know, there is a distributed information and there are many possible clocks that you can, that you can get. And we also did an, exp I mean, you can even take random genes and you can still make a prediction from random genes. So the clock for certain is not showing what 
is causative of aging. It's, it's a measure of the phenotype. And this information is distributed um, over relatively small changes over relatively many genes. The other point of the epigenetic clock that tells us something about what this clock is, is that there has been an effort to compare the clocks in different mammalian species by using only those parts of the genome that were conserved. And what is conserved across the species is that with age, there is uh, increasing methylation of developmental genes, especially genes that are responsible for development of the nervous system, which would rather really tell that what the clock is measuring is passing time. It makes completely sense that uh, DNA methylation should have a repressive effect on gene expression. So it makes completely sense that with time passing, there is methylation of genes that are expressed during development. But this probably is not what is causing aging. Yeah. It's a measure of aging, but it's, it's, not, uh, it's not telling us what is causative of aging. Yeah, I think there's a ton of research to be done here and I'm super interested about what will happen in the next few years. So I guess it's time for my last very typical question, that is, what are your top two questions and dreams for technologies to start answering these questions? What are the translations of these research real world settings to customers and most importantly to clinical trials? I mean, there are, there are, there are two related questions. I mean, one is, uh, is really related to more basic science. It would be wonderful to understand, to be able to specifically modulate methylation of sites in the DNA and see then what is the outcome of this methylation. So really, you know, make a test in the context of aging to what extent this pattern of DNA methylation is causative. I mean, this would really answer the question you made before. I mean, I made, I made a reasoning about it, but this would give the answer to the question. And, yeah. and, and on, on the other hand, I mean, certainly what I really see is that there will be a huge development of these biomarkers in the context of aging, in the context of age-related diseases that will likely in the next maybe 20, 30 years, uh, change a lot of, of how we, we prevent diseases, because it will be possible using these biomarkers to design interventions that will reduce the, the risk for age-related diseases. I mean, on top of what we already know, because we already know <laughs> what are the risk factors that we should uh, keep at bait, but um, this is certainly, I mean, there is a whole industry that it's now called longevity tech industry that is aiming at this, at this and is 
sort of seen as the new big tech uh, in a way. I mean, where really development can happen in the future. Yeah, so your best prediction for something happening in the next 20 or 30 years, just pure speculation? Oof, I don't know. Now, you know, I don't like to do predictions because at some point, especially over this very long time, some disruptive technology comes and this changes everything, you know. I, I've learned from the next generation sequencing how disruptive a disruptive technology can be. Also CRISPR-Cas9 is another example. And 30 years is a very long time in biomedical science at the moment, I mean. <laughs> I guess that's also really exciting for students like me to know. So thank you for sharing all your insights about aging research, about your own experience and about machine learning to us. I think this has been really one of the exciting episodes of this podcast and I want to really thank you for your time and uh, explaining so in depth. But if I can give, you know, it is a very general, a very general prediction, very positive one is that I think in 30 years from now, probably medicine will be very different from we know now. <laughs> That's very exciting. <laughs> okay, have a nice day. You've just listened to A Biotech Futurist, a podcast by Luca Fusarbassini. This is the first series and a new episode is out every Monday. Please consider subscribing and rating the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Instagram or your top podcasting platform. And if you liked this episode, consider sharing it with your friends, as the growth of new podcasts relies on word of mouth. If you have any suggestions, don't hesitate to reach out to me on Instagram or Gmail at the biotechfuturistpodcast at gmail.com. You can find the full AI-generated transcript of this episode on my website, lucafuzarabassini.com. I also post the links to the main papers referenced in this episode, which you can find here in the description too. Thanks for listening to A Biotech Futurist. I am looking forward to talking with you in a week.